Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Sullivan. On the program today, vaccine nationalism. Our contracts are with Pfizer and Moderna. Those are suppliers that are not targeted by the EU restriction. In addition, our diplomacy to date has continued to serve Canadians well as we continue to get vaccines out of Europe. Are Canada's critical vaccine supplies in jeopardy from political pressures in the EU and India? And what drove Canada to suddenly put tough new sanctions on Chinese and Russian officials? Are more measures coming? The Foreign Affairs Minister Mark Garneau joins us with the latest on that. Then, Green and Supreme. This is an historic day for Canada and for our planet, for the economy, and for all Canadians for generations to come. Canada's Conservatives will repeal Mr. Trudeau's carbon tax. We will protect the environment and fight climate change. But we won't be doing that by making the poorest Canadians pay. A price on carbon is legal according to the Supreme Court. Will that force the Conservative Party to reveal their plan on carbon pricing? What's the political fallout? We'll talk to the Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson and from the opposition perspective, Conservative MP Tim Upple and Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Plus, unprepared. The agency continued to assess the risk as low despite growing numbers of COVID-19 cases in Canada and worldwide. Why were some of Canada's key agencies so unprepared to deal with the COVID pandemic? From no early warning system to outdated plans, what did the Auditor General find went wrong in those first key months? We'll find out when the Auditor General herself, Karen Hogan, joins us. Plus, relief or recovery? With fears of a third wave coming, should the April 19th federal budget deal with spending or savings? We'll take that up on the scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Can the Prime Minister absolutely guarantee that zero doses of vaccines will be held back from the EU to our country over the next two months? We share the urgency of all Canadians to ensure access to COVID-19 vaccines. We are concerned with the new reports of restrictions out of the EU or potential restrictions out of the EU, uh, and we will be continuing to work with our counterparts, uh, including direct uh, contact uh, from me to the highest levels of the European Commission, uh, in order to ensure uh, that Canada's supply of vaccines is not in danger, is not interrupted. Are Canada's key vaccine supplies under threat? The Prime Minister has expressed concerns that the EU will use export controls to cut off Canada's precious supply of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, despite getting assurances that they won't. And what about India, which is set to send Canada one and a half million doses of AstraZeneca? Is that government threatening to hold back supply for their own population? It's all put a spotlight on Canada's influence on the global stage. On a week when Canada joined allies like the U.S., the EU and the U.K. hitting both the Chinese and Russian officials with new sanctions. Is Canada prepping for a more hostile relationship with some key powers? Let's find out. Joining me now is Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Mark Garneau. Minister, good to have you on the program. I want to start on the, uh, the vaccine threats and the concerns here. Has your government got a guarantee from the European Union that it will not use any export controls to stop Canada's precious vaccine supply? So what I will say, Evan, is that we have been continuously reassured by Europe, uh, and this is based on calls by the Prime Minister, by Minister Ng. I've made some calls myself that they will respect the contracts that we have signed with Moderna and Pfizer. We have 
as, as recently as uh, Friday, uh, gotten those reassurances. Minister Ng was talking to France uh, and, and Sweden and Belgium, and we continue to get those reassurances. And I would remind Canadians that uh, we have received all of the uh, vaccines that we have a contract for so far. That's in the first quarter. Uh, the big concern is the second quarter when the lion's share of our um, vaccines are supposed to ar arrive from there. Canada is still not sort of exempt, though, from the export control. So when you're speaking to the European leadership, what are they saying to you? They say, you know, we'll honor it, but we've just seen them in a threaten to cut off supplies to the UK. They're clearly not immune to, to doing that. Have they said Canada is exempt, we'll take you off the export controls list? Well, the only uh, countries that are exempt are 92 countries that are developing countries. Uh, we're obviously not a developing country. But again, uh, Evan, we have been given reassurances that our contracts with Moderna and Pfizer are going to be respected, and we're fully confident that uh, Europe will live up to that. Okay, what about guarantees from India and Prime Minister Modi that Canada's 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca that we're expecting to get will not be blocked? Well, again, we have a contract for 2 million doses of the Kobe Shield from the Serum Institute, and all of our indications, and we, we monitor this, are that in addition to the 500,000 doses we've already received, that India will provide us with the other 1.5 1, 1 million uh, in, in the coming weeks. Okay, so there's a guarantee that India is not going to stop that. There are... Uh, specific reassurances that they will respect that contract. I, I want to move on to China. Your government slapped uh, officials, four officials and one business entity with sanctions over the human rights abuses China has inflicted on the Muslim uh, minority population, Uyghur population there. That happened the same day that one of the two Michaels, Michael uh, Kovrig's uh, show trial took place in Beijing. Minister, China is warning that Canada will, quote, have to pay a price for their ignorance and arrogance. What are you expecting in terms of China's response? Well, we don't know what their response will be, but uh, it's important uh, to know that we are a country that has principles and values and operates by the rule of law. And sometimes we have to speak up, and that is what we have done with respect to arbitrary detention, under bogus charges of uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and also gross violations of human rights of the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the Xinjiang area. And Canada will deal with China in a very complex relationship, even though China has changed a lot in the last five years, with, will deal uh, with, uh, with China with uh, issues such as trade and, uh, and, uh, and other kinds of relations. But sometimes we have to speak up. Uh, you know, so what's the you, message to China? The message is this. I've known bullies in my life, but I also know bullies can change. But they will only change if you pass the message to them that they have to change. And this is the message that we are carrying along with our allies, that if China wants to operate on the world stage, which is fine, they must operate under international rules and the rule of law. And that is a message that Canada and more and more other countries are starting to pass to China. It just can't do whatever it wants and expect to have things done its way through its coercive diplomacy. We hope that they will change. But, but they, we, 
we need to carry those messages to them in order for them to change. But, sir, the way countries speak to each other is through their ambassador. Our ambassador, Dominic Barton, was not in China for the trials of the two Michaels after more than two years, was not at home, on, was not in China when Canada brought the sanctions against Chinese officials. These are, this was the most critical day. Why was he brought home, sitting in quarantine in Canada, when he should have been joining other ambassadors in Beijing, standing outside that courtroom? It is perfectly standard procedure for the government of Canada to recall ambassadors when they need to have important discussions. And, and at the moment, we need to have important strategic discussions with Ambassador Barton on our relationship with China. And that decision was made before the announcement of the trials, and that's why he came back and he was in quarantine. And we were very ably represented by the chargé d'affaires, uh, Jim Nichol, uh, who did an excellent job and, of course, was accompanied by members of 22 other countries in front of the courthouse in Beijing. What pressure are you putting on the U.S. right now to help free the two Michaels? We uh, brought it up, the Prime Minister, on the very first official meeting back on the 23rd of February with uh, President Biden. I have subsequently brought it up with my counterpart, Senator, uh, beg your pardon, uh, Secretary Blinken. Uh, the United States, let me say, is ex very seized with the fact that this is an extremely important issue right. for Canada. And they have said so. And they have even gone as so far as to say, as you know, that they are treating the two Michaels as though they were American citizens. You can't get more serious about it than that. All right, I got to leave it there. Um, a new Canadian position on some key issues here. Uh, Mark Garneau, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Evan. Canadians rightly expect their governments to build an economy that fights climate change using the most effective tools at our disposal. And now, we can get on with the job. The carbon tax impacts our competitiveness and it hurts people on the margins the most. I think it's backwards, to be honest. So our approach will not have the, the taxation approach. A federal price on carbon is legal. In a crucial 6-3 to three ruling, the Supreme Court of Canada concluded that the federal government has the constitutional right to apply minimum national standards on greenhouse gas emissions and a price on carbon, saying that climate change is a matter of national concern. Now, this is a big political victory for the Liberal Party and a big loss for Ontario, Alberta and Saskatchewan, who fought this all the way to the top court. All right, so now what? The Conservative Party leader, Aaron O'Toole, says if he's elected, he'll kill the Liberals' carbon price altogether. He told me this past week that he won't impose a federal minimum standard either. So how will his party uh, still meet their Paris Climate Accord targets that they say they're committed to doing? Remember, uh, Thursday's court decision came after the Conservative Party's convention, where Mr. O'Toole declared the climate debate was over, then Democrats delegates said not so fast and they voted against a resolution to put the phrase climate change is real in the conservative platform. So what does it mean for that party's approach to climate change? We did ask the conservative leader to join us. We also asked his deputy leader, Kenneth Bergen. They were unavailable, but the conservative uh, MP Tim Uppel is here and he joins us now. Uh, good to see you, Mr. Uppel. Your party hasn't revealed your climate plan yet, but in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, if you were elected, would your party use the federal power to enforce any national standards on, on greenhouse gas emissions or a price on carbon on the provinces? 
Well, what we see from the uh, court ruling is that uh, climate change itself is important, and then, and uh, you know, as conservatives, we would have a comprehensive plan. So we would have a plan where we work with the provinces and work with industry to ensure that we're able to lower emissions, but also protect Canadian jobs as well. What the carbon tax does is really it hurts, uh, you know, working Canadians. It hurts the poorest among us. Um, so we would we would be able to lower emissions without hurting hurting uh, the average Canadian. Okay. But what if they don't want to meet a minimum standard to meet the Paris Climate Accord? Like, if there's no enforcement, what incentive do the provinces have under a Conservative government to actually meet the targets that you say Canada will meet? We can work with the provinces. We can, uh, you know, to talk about how we can encourage the provinces to make sure that we meet those targets. But how do you, you don't encourage have to them have without something, something like a, you don't have to have a carbon tax that hurts Canadians and hurts Canadian jobs? There, are, there's other ways that we can do it, and we would work with the provinces to ensure that we have an, a good, strong environmental plan, but also protects Canadians' jobs. We need to be, you know, especially with the economy coming out of this pandemic, we have to be competitive, and you cannot just have a plan like the carbon tax that actually hurts Canadian jobs. Okay. and doesn't so the, help so, the environment. Okay, so you, you wouldn't have the enforcement mechanism. Let me just talk to you about saying, you've said, and Mr. O'Toole said, this is the carbon price and the tax on carbon hurts uh, low-income workers. Uh, according to a February 2020 report by the Independent Parliamentary Budget Officer of Canada, he said actually that's factually wrong, that the poorest Canadians actually have a net gain because of the rebate that is part of the package. In the province that you're from, Alberta, the parliamentary budget officer says the net gain for the poorest Albertans would be over $340. That's the data from an independent officer of parliament. What data do you have that actually contradicts that, that says this actually hurts workers? What I'm hearing from Canadians is that they're frustrated that they're paying more for, for gas. They're paying more to get to work. They're paying more from going from their homes in, in many suburbs, going to downtown to go to work or wherever they're working. And, and even now, I mean, Justin Trudeau is going to increase the cost of, of the, the carbon tax that would have cost Canadians more in the middle of a pandemic. Okay, well, well let me just first... Respectfully, you've said you have anecdotal evidence that uh, people are frustrated by it. Anecdotes aren't data. The data from the parliamentary budget officer actually says the rebate, which you haven't mentioned, actually gives people back more money. Uh, now let's talk. So that's the data. It's not my data. But there's data. many more people that are paying it than the, that, are, that are getting that rebate, right? So there is a better way of doing this than putting it on but, the backs of those hardworking Canadians. Sir, sir, respectfully, we can work the data, without a carbon tax. I just, I'm just trying to debate the facts. The parliamentary budget officer said six out of eight, uh, six to eight out of 10 Canadians are actually ahead. The only people that pay slightly more, about 200 bucks more, are people who make more than $100,000. That's the data of an independent analysis from the parliamentary budget officer which I know your party quotes, but let's talk about uh, the, the other issue that you've mentioned, and Mr. O'Toole, is that businesses will leave. There's a flight of capital. Um, again, uh, British Columbia has had a carbon tax since 2008. They've been the fastest growing economy since then. What evidence do you have that there has been some kind of flight of capital due to carbon emissions, or due to the price on carbon? It's not, it, there, there is a problem with the carbon tax itself because it, it's costing companies more and then they're passing on that cost to consumers. So it's a, it's a competitive issue. When you're dealing with, you know, are they going to set up shop in Canada where it's going to cost you more or are they going to set up shop maybe in the U.S. where it costs them less? I haven't seen the evidence that, that big emitters uh, are going to leave, but your own party says your plan that you're talking about, which you haven't unveiled, but your leader says you are going to put a price on carbon for big emitters, the very people you're saying are leaving because of a price on carbon. So which is it? Are you going to 
Are you worried that they're leaving? So you're going to take the price of carbon off the big emitters, or are you putting it on the big emitters? Because you're saying, frankly, two, two different things here. No, we're not. What we're saying is that we would work with the provinces and with the industry to ensure that we are able to help them lower emissions, but also be able to stay in Canada and, and create jobs and maintain Canadian jobs. We want to make sure that we're fighting the, you know, working with the environment, helping to, and, and reducing emissions, but also getting our economy back on track. We can do both. We don't, you don't have to do one or the other. So I'm just trying to understand this. I know the plan's not here yet, but you're saying the conservative plan will not have a federal enforcement mechanism of minimum standards, will not have a price on carbon, will focus on big emitters. Sir, big emitters make up exactly 30% of Canada's overall greenhouse gas emissions. So you're saying your party can meet the, the Paris targets uh, just enforcing th emissions on 30% of our emissions, that's it? You can do that? What we're saying is that we will kill the carbon tax. We won't have a tax on Canadians. And we were saying, uh, what we're saying is that we will work with the provinces and with the in, with industries to in, to reduce their emissions. We can work with them and help them to reduce it uh, even further. Like if you just look at even at the uh, energy sector, the energy sector over the last number of years ha have actually reduced their carbon footprint. Right. We can work with them even more and help I mean, right. invest in technologies that does that. When, when is this plan uh, going to be revealed? You will, you will see our full environmental plan, which will be a very comprehensive plan, um, before the election. But, well, and that, the, that election timing is up to Justin Trudeau, so who knows when that's going to be. Okay, but I mean, the, if the election is, uh, you know, after the, the, the federal budget, which is April 19th, if I, I'm just saying such a critical issue, uh, will it be in the it next month? Important. You're right. So, so, so you, we could see this plan within the next month? You will see this plan once we, we, we release it, but it will be a very comprehensive uh, conservative approach to reducing emissions, but also uh, improving our economic situation, because that is our focus right now. All right. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us, Mr. Apple. Thanks so much. Thank you, Evan. Good to join you. Okay, let's get the federal government's perspective. Joining us now is the Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister, good to have you back on the program. Let me just start with a decision. Obviously, uh, it was a big day for your government. What is your reaction to the impact this Supreme Court decision will have? Well, it, it, as you say, I think it was an important day. It kind of settled the, the, the legal wrangling that's been going on with respect to the price on pollution. Um, that is a key part of our climate plan. But of course, our climate plan is significantly broader than that. But I think what it does is it clears the path to be able to move forward to implement the work that has been done to ensure that Canada is going to meet and exceed its current Paris Agreement targets and, and do so in a manner that actually will promote economic prosperity and jobs for Canadians. Okay, now you've heard the, some reaction from the three provinces and from uh, the official opposition. I spoke to Aaron O'Toole, I just spoke to Tim Uppel. Uh, the Conservatives have a couple questions. They say, first of all, they'll never use the power that the Supreme Court has granted to the federal government to set minimum standards on greenhouse gas emissions. They're going to simply rely on the provinces to come up with their own solutions and reach that goal. What do you make of that? Can they just say, look, the provinces will do it, we'll cooperate with them, we don't need an enforcement measure? Well, I would just say that that's essentially a declaration by the Conservative Party that they're not serious about meeting the, the, uh, the Paris Agreement targets. I mean, at the end of the day, you need a national plan. That's exactly what the Supreme Court said yesterday. This is an issue of national concern. Um, and the federal government has to be willing to ensure that at a minimum, we are achieving the kinds of reductions we need to, to make the progress that Canada is committed to in the international community. 
If you're not willing to do that, if you're willing to simply throw up your hands and say, let the provinces do it, um, then, you know, they, they simply will be incapable of meeting the target. Well, he says that he contends here we'll have a plan. We haven't seen the details that will meet the Paris Accord without the federal enforcement measure. And by the way, without a price on carbon, he says he's going to cancel the carbon tax, the carbon price, because he says, one, it hits the poorest Canadians the hardest, he contends. And he also contends that it's causing a big flight of capital, that industry are fleeing Canada to jurisdictions like the United States that don't have a price on carbon and it's made us uncompetitive. What do you make of those two arguments? Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, the first is uh, I am getting increasingly tired of the federal Conservative Party simply making up facts. Um, they can read the Parliamentary Budget Officer's report just like everybody else can. The majority of Canadian families are actually better off with the price on pollution, and, and that is particularly true for low and middle income people. So, you know, I would encourage Aaron O'Toole to broaden his reading list um, and to actually look at the facts. That is just absolutely false that this targets poor people. In fact, as I say, poor, poorer people are better off under the price than they would be if there was no price. In terms of industrial emissions, I mean, Aaron O'Toole says we need to price industrial emissions. We agree. We have industrial pricing systems across the country, but we structured them in a way that we actually incent them to perform to best in class and we protect them from some of the trade issues in terms of carbon leakage. Now, if Aaron O'Toole wants to, to make, make it so that industrial emitters pay even more, the carbon leakage issue becomes more significant. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you're worried about carbon leakage and you're going to price uh, industrial emissions even okay. more than, than the current federal government is doing. But, 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 but is he right to say that, you know, industries might just go, OK, we're going to go over to the United States. They don't have a, a price on carbon. They don't even have emission intensity issues. No, he's wrong. I mean, you know, the, the way in which the industrial emissions uh, piece is structured is to essentially protect and avoid carbon leakage, avoid companies actually moving for those kinds of reasons. But I would also say Aaron O'Toole should actually, you know, understand that the Americans are moving very rapidly on climate change. If, uh, if he would have a conversation with John Kerry or any of the other folks that are involved in the Biden administration, they are going to be extremely ambitious on climate, and it will be it will be an interesting discussion and, and almost competition between Canada and the United States in terms of level of ambition. So, you know, this this kind of argument is is just well, not is not true. What do you expect provinces like Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Ontario to do now? What will your government actually accept? Because some of them are going to start. Yeah, we're going to have a rebate at the gas pumps. They're going to have to develop their own provincial plans. Uh, what will your government accept and get rid of the backstop for? Well, one of the things that we said when we released the climate plan in December was there was a need to strengthen the benchmark, uh, the, the minimum standards that, uh, that provinces and territories need to meet in order to have a provincial system in place instead of a federal system. We're discussing that right now with provinces and territories, and we intend to be able to put something forward in terms of what the, the, that will look like in the next couple of months. Got to leave it there. Minister, always good to have you on the program. Appreciate it. Thanks. No, not at all. Thank you. Not adequately prepared to respond to the pandemic, underestimating the severity of it, outdated plans. Canada's handling of the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic has come under severe criticism in a new report from Canada's Auditor General. That's not all she said. The report highlighted shortcomings in the Public Health Agency of Canada's early warning system, its information gathering. It also pointed to border services and how it failed to follow up with incoming travellers. So what went wrong? Let's find out.
Joining me now is Canada's Auditor General, Karen Hogan. Great to have you, Auditor General, on the program. Look, Canada has had lots of threats from viruses before H1N1 and SARS, but in your report you conclude, quote, the Public Health Agency of Canada underestimated the potential impact of COVID-19 and was not adequately prepared. What exactly went wrong? It's great to be here, Evan. Thanks. Uh, we did find in our audit that uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada was not as prepared as it should have been. And I would highlight that probably in four quick areas for you. So the first was that emergency and health plans uh, were not up to date, but more importantly, the federal, provincial and territorial response plan had not yet been tested. The second item that we found was that the agency had not addressed long-standing issues on data sharing with information between the provinces and territories and hadn't updated their IT system to support the sharing of that information. We also found that the agency used a risk assessment that wasn't meant to consider pandemic risks. And then finally, that they hadn't planned nor prepared to, to enforce a nationwide mandatory quarantine like the one we've been living through for the last little while. So those are big issues. What's the consequences of those shortcomings? Well, throughout our audit, uh, we, we looked closely at what happened at the border. And unfortunately, because the agency hadn't well prepared for it and, and was lacking capacity, while they thought, thought some help uh, from other departments, uh, they were unable to demonstrate to us that more than two-thirds of the individuals who were supposed to quarantine had actually respected the guidelines. Um, and so you really do need to put a value on being prepared um, and, and preventing things instead of trying to react in the middle of a pandemic. But was there any uh, data on the consequence, for example, if they didn't know you know, if people are quarantined or not, did that have an impact on the severity of the pandemic? So we were unable to determine, as well as the agency, whether uh, if we had been better prepared, um, if, if the response of the country would have been different. Right. But these things are, are, are telling. You also found that Canada's early warning system wasn't working. Um, and there's been a lot of stories about that. I've interviewed the health minister about that. What exactly happened there? So the, the Global Public Health Intelligence Network uh, is, is really meant to do two things. It issues daily reports and then it issues alerts. And the daily report is, is a summary of some articles of interest on health matters across the world. Um, and then an alert is meant to signal something that's unusual, something that could have a significant impact. Uh, the agency has criteria that outline when an alert should have been issued. Um, and in this case, we believe one should have been issued. Right. An alert was issued for H1N1 and SARS. And so it's really unclear why an alert uh, wasn't triggered this time. No alert triggered because basically they shuttered that agency and now they've had to, to kickstart it again. Who specifically bears responsibility uh, for not uh, having, uh, you know, Public Health Agency of Canada's risk assessment, not having the uh, early warning system up to date. Whose responsibility was that uh, to get that done? So the work that we saw around the network was um, was that they had changed certain directives on who would approve the issuance of an alert. Uh, in the past, it was done by an analyst, and now it required some senior management uh, to approve it. But what we did notice is that following that daily report that I mentioned earlier, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada um, used that daily report as a sign to, ha to signal to her provincial counterparts um, that uh, the country needed to pay attention. 
but again, it was really unclear why that alert wasn't issued. Um, and, and that's why I encourage the agency to, to figure out exactly what they want from the network to make it clear when and how it should be used and then to use it as intended. Right, I, I would say I did interview the health minister about that. Uh, she said when she came into uh, that position, Patty, she wasn't even aware of the situation until she read about it in the media. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that they were changing some operating procedures and it was pretty unclear within the agency when it should be used. Uh, but as we saw in the past, an alert was issued for H1N1 and SARS, and at the time it was credited for uh, part of the response that the country had. It shows me that when you use tools in machine intelligence, that you always need some good human judgment to help make a sound decision. And that's where the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada really played her role this time. All right, uh, Auditor General uh, Karen Hogan, I know there's more reports coming as we look at this extremely uh, unique year in the past. Uh, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks. While we are disappointed with this decision, we have to respect that it's majority decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. We are going to consult with Albertans and also talk to our allied provinces uh, to determine the, the best way forward to protect jobs and the economy in Alberta, to minimize the costs of any future policies on this province. So a green light from the Supreme Court on the federal government's carbon pricing. Last September, remember, Canada's top court heard arguments from Saskatchewan, Ontario and Alberta against the carbon pricing plan. Two of those provinces also unsuccessfully argued in lower courts that this was a case of federal overreach into provincial jurisdiction. But now the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of the federal government. So where do these dissenting provinces go from here? And what does this mean for the federal conservatives' own climate plan. Let's dig into all the implications of this. The Scrum is here. Joyce Napier joins us, the CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter with the Canadian Press. And our special guest this round is Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Good morning to everyone. Premier Moe, I'll start with you because obviously your province um, was involved in this. You lost at the Supreme Court. Um, now you'll have to have a plan to meet the federal government's targets with an escalating price on carbon. What will the Saskatchewan plan be now? Oh, we're just looking at what uh, that plan will look like, but the plan will be based on, uh, yes, uh, being in, in compliance, uh, pardon me, with, the, uh, with what the uh, federal government has approved in other areas uh, of the nation. Uh, but the plan will also have an eye to ensure that we are protecting Saskatchewan industries. Uh, and the plan will only be uh, revolving or, or focused in on, on a fuel tax, on a carbon tax on fuel, which is the backstop that the federal government had put in in Saskatchewan among other provinces. We've already moved uh, with respect to our heavy emitter plan in Saskatchewan as other, have, other provinces have and move forward on a number of equivalency agreements as well in methane and coal-fired electricity to ensure that we are uh, reducing emissions here in Saskatchewan. So the, the case centered around a carbon tax on fuel will be moving forward with a a plan that uh, will protect uh, Saskatchewan industries, uh, protect Saskatchewan families as well, as, uh, as we've always felt that this isn't an effective plan in reducing emissions. Uh, but now that the Supreme Court has ruled, uh, we, will, we will be moving forward uh, with, with those uh, priorities uh, at, the, at the front at the f forefront of, of, of the plan that we will be submitting. Okay, Steph, so there you got, you have, uh, you know, Premier Mo saying, look, we're gonna move to compliance. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has said, look, um, uh, I would never use the federal power uh, that the court has just affirmed to impose minimum standards. I'm gonna scrap the national price on carbon anyway, but I'll still hit the Paris target. So what do you think the fallout of this decision is on 
uh, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative plan? Well, for the for the one thing, I mean, if provinces like Premier Moe's are going to come on side and develop their own provincial plans, and then one wonders what happens to the national price on carbon. Is it still required? Is there some needle that Aaron O'Toole can thread where he focuses a national carbon price on the heavy emitter industry, which most provinces already are doing anyway, and, and sort of takes tries to find a way to take it off what he likes to call the working Canadians, because that's the nuance there, Evan. The thing that Aaron O'Toole has stopped saying, or I should say he has started saying, is not that he's going to scrap the federal carbon tax outright, that he's going to scrap it on working Canadians, or after the Supreme Court case, his answer was on the poorest Canadians. So there's clearly a path forward here for the Conservatives to find some kind of pricing on carbon, um, mostly because, you know, even their internal polling is telling them that if they want to pick up seats in the 905 and, and places like Vancouver, with all due respect to the Conservatives in Premier Moe's province, it's going to take some kind of national price on carbon to do that because somehow over time we've evolved to a point politically that unless you say, I am going to put a price on carbon, voters don't take you seriously. So he's got to find either another way to make the argument convincing right or come around on a price on carbon. Scott Moe, you've looked at this real close. The parliamentary budget officer did a study on this and affirmed that actually the lowest income Canadians get more money back from the federal governments, the Liberal government's rebate on uh, the carbon price or the carbon tax. So they get more than they lose. There's no evidence that the carbon price has actually driven business away from the country. In fact, there's evidence that some some things like you think of the Norway's um, um, pension fund, they won't actually invest their sovereign wealth fund in Canada because of a lack of uh, some uh, carbon price emissions. So what is the problem with this? If it's not affecting the, the work and poor, if it's not affecting businesses and people get, why not buy into this price on carbon as an efficient mechanism to price externalities? It is affecting families and there's also no evidence that it is the carbon tax on fuel is actually reducing emission, emissions to any measurable, measurable wave, most certainly not in the province of Saskatchewan. And listen, we're, we're focusing in on uh, one side of, uh, of a much broader conversation and that is a carbon tax uh, on fuel. Um, that is supposed to reduce emissions in some magical way hasn't uh, been able to uh, demonstrate uh, that it has the ability to do that. What we need to have and what we are attempting to have here in Saskatchewan is a much broader conversation that yes, uh, does have a focus on emissions but also uh, brings a sequestration opportunities into that conversation and so there's a much much broader conversation when it comes to climate change and the carbon conversation about a net carbon uh, net carbon goals as opposed to just taxing um, taxing emissions um, that disproportionately I would say uh, hurts um, people in different areas of the country most certainly affects them differently. Joyce, last word to you because we're about to go and talk about the budget in a minute. Uh, April 19th, that's obviously key, but we're in election season already. Does the price on carbon and climate issues, does that become a ballot box question, kind of nose in there beyond just the COVID issue and the recovery issue? Well, even before it becomes a ballot question, Evan, I think it should be something in the budget. We are expecting a budget. We know that Christian Freeland has put aside $100 billion in this budget for the recovery. Would you make it more palatable if you had something about, for instance, beginning to transition our economy? Um, those are jobs out there, uh, out west, that perhaps sometimes Ontario tends to ignore. 
Uh, but these are bread and butter issues. Here they're more ideological, they're, they're bread and butter issues. Can we meet somewhere halfway? Will the minister, the finance minister, in her budget address some of right. these issues? Will that be then a ballot, a, a ballot question or some, among the ballot questions that we have? I want to see that in that budget. I think that would be interesting. This is uh, beyond the Supreme Court decision. We've got to start thinking beyond the Supreme Court, beyond the dispute on who's allowed to impose a carbon tax or not. Let's get concrete and let's see how this government wants to transition our economy because we're going to have to do that. Okay, speaking about transitions, we're about to make one. Uh, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, thanks for being our special guest on this round. Relief or recovery? That is the question. Canada is facing a third wave of COVID-19 as the variants of concern are infecting more people. And even as the vaccines are now surging, will more restrictions keep Canada's economy in a pandemic purgatory? These questions are critical as Canada's finance minister, Christopher Freeland, prepares for the April 19th federal budget, the first in more than two years. Should there be more spending and extend the relief programs, or should there be a focus on recovery and maybe balancing the books? Let's weigh in on that. The Scrum is back. Steph Levitz from the Canadian Press is back. Joining her is Amber Canwar, host at uh, BNN Bloomberg. Great to have you here, Amber. And our special guest this round is the uh, President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, Goldie Hyder. All right, uh, Goldie, let me just start with you. Um, it's, it's a weird line, right? Because there's fears of more restrictions. Uh, there's a need for more support, and yet, um, you know, there's a talk of more spending. What do you think this is critical for this budget to do? How do they walk this line? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it. It is a precarious time. We are hearing about the variants. We're concerned about where we are with our vaccine rollout. Uh, and clearly there's anxiety in the public. But this is a time where governments need to be able to do two things, deal with the present, but also address the future. And that would build the thing that I think we most need in our society today, Evan, and that's confidence. A sense of hope and optimism that our governments, our businesses, our labor unions and others are working together to address the problems that are causing that anxiety. So what we're looking for in the budget is deal with the short term. Clearly, there's going to be some relief, that, ongoing relief that's going to be necessary. I continue to be concerned at the absence of a response for the distressed sectors that are simply paying the price for being compliant uh, with the rules of the day in terms of our airline industry, hospitality, tourism, retail, et cetera. So let's get that addressed. But at the same time, around the world, governments are working with businesses to develop a long-term strategy as well, because we've got to pay this back and you, you can't just keep adding to it. We've got to figure out how to grow our economy. So we're looking for a long-term strategic plan while addressing short-term issues. Yeah, but Amber, sectors like the tourism sector, the culture sector this week said, we need the, the programs that are scheduled to end on June 5th to be extended till the end of the year. Then you've got these historic deficits. You've also you know, got some growth in the economy. So what do you expect should be in this budget or, or will be in this budget? I mean, truthfully, worrying about deficits seems like a real luxury. I think we'd love for the only thing to, for any of us to be worrying about is how big the deficit is. But the game that's being played right now is pump money into the system. And that's not just a Canada game. It is happening around the world because you need to fill this huge hole that the pandemic has left. And so the question is not about, you know, the size of the deficit. You know, it's going to be huge. And I think even conservatives and liberals are on board with that. It's going to be how exactly do you target it? And the number one economic issue for me and for many executives has been you have a situation where women, working mothers, have been the most marginalized 
part of the workforce. Uh, and one of the things we're expecting to learn is what is the plan yeah. and how much are you going to put behind the so-called national child care strategy? And it's not, I'm, I'm not just saying this as a woman who's, you know, got two kids who, you know, this is really personal for me. You've had bank executives, CEOs, pen op-eds about this specific right. issue saying you cannot have a recovery unless this part of the population is taken care of. Yeah, Goldie, you wanted to weigh in. Yeah, I, I did, because I think the, the point that Amber made about deficits and debt, yeah, it's not something that I think anybody is really seized with today, but there is a recognition that someday we're going to have to begin the process of paying that back. And what we should be aware of is our government spent more per capita than any other government in the world. Uh, so really, we've overstimulated. And as a result, as the Minister of Finance says, we know there's a preloaded stimulus. So I would be worried if we're just unnecessarily going to be you know, stimulating an economy that's so preloaded, it's going to be like a slingshot, according to economists, effectively Q3, Q4, once we get past the herd immunity. So let's give that a go before we create any kind of long-term spending. And I want to remind the government and certainly the minister that her mandate letter says no permanent long-term spending. My own message to her has been do exactly like Amber and Stephanie have been alluded to, spend on the things that are accretive that will add the value and will get return on that investment and address the productivity lags that we have. Because our issue is a competitive economy. Right. We can't go back to where we were last February and say, oh, well, now everything's as usual. Yeah, you know, Amber and uh, also, Goldie I mean, are, are, are talking about the, the financial element, which is critical, Steph. But, you know, you're in Ottawa. The, a budget is not just a financial document, as you know, especially right now in a minority government facing an election. It's a political document. What are the politics of this, uh, considerations of this? Well, I mean, one of the things we've seen in the last, I guess I would say a couple of weeks or so, is, is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who effectively holds the balance of power in Parliament in his own way, because he is the most likely dance partner for the Liberals. He has said time and time again over the last two weeks, he does not intend to trigger an election. And what he's looking for is making sure people get the help they need. So the question becomes, what's in this budget? What's in this plan that can give Jagmeet Singh the power to back up that statement? Have the Liberals poison-pilled it as one potential example if they do want to go to the polls? And if the Liberals don't want to go to the polls, how are the NDP going to find their way towards supporting the budget? The Bloc Quebecois can easily you know, dismiss it outright. That's fine for them. The Conservatives, of course, they're going to blow it up. But what's interesting for the Conservatives, of course, Evan, is that this, the budget that the Liberal government will present will also be the election platform the Conservatives need right. to run against. And so they have to read some tea leaves in this budget. You know, we, we've heard a lot out of the Conservatives. They're talking about they're going to put out a climate change plan. They're talking about how they're going to restore a million jobs, not create a million jobs. I find that interesting language. But you know what we haven't heard from them? We haven't heard from them answers to the questions that both Goldie and Amber raised. What about national child care? How are you going to get more women engaged back in the workforce? You say, Aaron O'Toole, you're going to bring down the deficit over 10 years. But how? What fiscal stimulus would you use to wind down these packages? And so it's going to be all over to Aaron tool after this budget comes out saying, okay, the Liberal government has put in the window what it wants to take to Canadians come the next election. Mr. O'Toole, over to you. Yeah, Amber, just last word to you because, it, look, we're talking about the federal budget and, and record deficits there, but we've seen in the last number of weeks a lot of provincial budgets. They are also getting walloped. So does anyone care? Like at one point, as Goldie says, we're going to have to pay the piper for all this. <laughs> so, so, so what happens then? 
Okay, so I don't want to get too nerdy, but there's this theory that's being floated around the world that deficits don't matter, that we're in this new environment of low interest rates where governments can borrow at these extremely low rates. So you're able to finance and carry a debt load that is significantly higher. And while governments tell Canadians, hey, don't apply that to yourself and to the housing market, they're happily doing right. that uh, themselves when it comes to their, their government spending. And then there's a whole other school of thought that says this time is different because uh, yes, you have to pay that back, but one of the best ways to pay that back is through economic growth, which goes to Goldie's point. You have to make sure what you're spending on right. generates a multiple above what you've spent. Right. That's how you pay it back, is the growth outweighs what you've gone in the hole for. Yeah, uh, Amber, you're never too nerdy to talk about modern monetary policy on this program. I lo we love it. All right, I, I got to leave it there, but these are fundamental <laughs> questions about a really important document. Uh, Amber, Goldie, and Steph, fantastic to have the three of you on the program. That is question period for this week. For those of you celebrating Passover tonight, as my family and my extended family will be doing, and I know Steph, you'll be doing the same thing, probably on Zoom. Happy Passover. Have a great Seder or Zader this year. And I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern. And we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.